0: well good morning canyon hills good morning. and for those of you joining us online welcome to canyon hills and thank you for bringing us into your home i think i should start by telling you that i had an interesting week i, had, I broke my hand this week and i have to tell you how i did it i was uh, playing with my grandkids in my backyard as we always do on sundays and they were chasing me but prior to that we were playing hockey not in roller skates but just in the grass with a regular ball and hockey sticks. And everything we play always turns into some race. I chase them, they chase me. And I was, they were chasing me and I was running around the swing and it's my own backyard, I should've known this, but there's a sprinkler there that I didn't see and I tripped on it. And before I landed, I just landed on my hand in this metal part of the swing that we have. And I immediately knew something happened and I started squirming and and saying ouchie, ouchie, basically. And I'm on the ground when I landed and the kids started laughing at me. They thought it was the funniest thing. But no, it gets better. So I finally managed to get myself up, and I'm still hurting. I'm still hurting. And Jeremiah, my five-year-old, comes with a hockey stick, and just in the groin, boom, just like that. And I go down again. <laughs> Didn't know what to hold my hand or my groin at that point. It was uh, it was a mess. It was uh, uh, thankfully there is no video uh, for that, but it was kind of like a scene from a movie. I just. Uh, finally got in to see the doctor and confirmed that it was broken and now i'm casted so that was my week i hope you guys had a better week than i did and you know this week we start a brand new series appropriately entitled what a mess right because things happen and over the next few weeks we're going to talk about all kinds of subjects that 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 we're going through things like our emotions and all the things that we're feeling we're even going to talk about consumer, consumerism and simplifying even our fear uh, our spiritual battles, and there's so many topics that we have in store for you. And specifically, we, we want to discuss how to turn our current mess into a message and how to take whatever, everything else that we're facing and refocus into what God would have us do. And I want to start this series by talking to you about this new normal that we find ourselves in because we hear a lot about this new normal. Everyone's talking about it, this normal, the new normal that that really has arrived without any invitation and has completely disrupted all of our lives. I think you would agree. But one thing is certain about our new normal is that it, it is uncertain. And th- there's no doubt that 2020, this last year, has been a year of many uncertainties. I need to stop moving my hand. And unexpected changes. And from, you know, the pandemic to the cancellation of all the major, I mean, you guys know all the major events, countless people had to really just adjust from their daily routines and and, and just put their plans, some of their plans and their hopes on on hold for the time being, even their plans for the future. And here's a few things that we can all recognize from our new normal. You know, face mask is a thing. Social distancing is a thing. Online meetings, drive-by celebrations, even blowing out the candles has changed forever, maybe forever, I don't know. And then there's some harder things to pinpoint that we're all wrestling with than our new normal. As we look around the world, at least what I find, and you may agree, we find ourselves questioning everything that we're told. Anybody there with me? And the truth is that we've never had more access to information. We've been, never been more weary of the information yet that we're told today, having all that information at our fingertips. In fact, our go-to response right now to get knowledge is, hey, we ask Siri or we Google it. I mean, it's, at our, it's in our fingertips. And it's, you know, obviously on our phones. And while I'll admit that having the ability to, um, to find things out and gain knowledge is at our fingertips, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing having that at seconds just to be able to pull out whatever you want is really, really amazing. But I think we are finding ourselves more and more with all this information we obtain As we question if it's actually truth. Or does this truth have an ulterior motive? I mean, how different is it from the ways we know truth to be or what we've known and what is good for our lives? I mean, who's giving us this information? I mean, some people would say sometimes it's a foreign government or it's the specific political agenda or maybe it's the media. I mean, there's all kinds of things that we're questioning right now. And one Always, given the choice, can make the distinction between good and evil. But in the information age that we live in, how can we be so sure? And I hope this isn't getting very deep, but I think that's, we're all, we're all there, right? We're all kind of thinking about this new normal and how it's affecting us in a, in a much deeper way. But, but, but a few things I know as reading the Bible and knowing my God, a few things are, sure, are for sure One thing is that this crisis doesn't define us, or it shouldn't define us. In fact, what it does is that it reveals us. It reveals the areas of our lives that we have to kind of work on. And when everything is turned upside down, that is when we truly discover where and what we put our trust in. Next, the next thing that's for sure, or certain for me in any ways, is that we haven't really seen this new normal in its totality. We haven't really seen the long-term effects of our current new normal and how that is going to shape our future new normal, if you will. I mean, take 9-11, for example. For me, I still remember, vividly remember where I was, uh, where, how I saw it, what happened, my emotions, when I saw those planes drive into the Twin Towers. I still recall that very vividly. And I think all of you would agree that we've never been the same since. Our travel industry has changed forever. A war was started as a result. A lot of new government agencies were formed. A no-fly list was developed. And we have very strict travel restrictions. Remove your shoes, your belts, your jackets, no liquids over four ounces. I mean, well, you guys know. We're we're living it. That is our new normal. And we've adjusted. Now, that new normal affected some people more than others, right? Right? Like take me, for example, I was put on the no-fly list. Nobody asked my permission. Nobody at asked me if I wanted to be on this list. I just found myself on that list. And I didn't even know about it until I started traveling internationally. And I remember the first time that I discovered that I was on such a list. And by the way, your pastor is not personally on that list. My name is. Apparently, if someone was to, you know, take a name and fake it and try to do something bad with it, they would choose my very common name. So that's why I'm on that list. And and for a long time after 9-11, every time I flew internationally, I was put in a small little room for about 45 minutes, an average of about 45 minutes. Without fail, every single time I traveled, it's like I knew already, here I go, I'm going to my little room, until they sorted out who I really was. And this whole time, I thought I was proof of who I really was, but apparently not. They had to verify who I really was. And over the next few years, and even today, I'm still on that list, but I was told that maybe I should apply for global entry and it would make things easier for me. So I did. Anybody here have global entry and know what I'm talking about? You know, when you travel, you just, well, here's the way it works. You have a little card, and while everybody else is going through the lines of going in through, uh, not customs, but immigration, uh, you get to go to this special area where there's a kiosk. You insert your card, and it prints out a slip, and you give that little slip to the agent, and the agent looks at it, looks at you, and then he says, welcome home, or welcome to America, or welcome to the U.S. of A., and that's the way it should work. What happens to me when I travel, I put my card in, and it prints out a little slip with a big X on it. So I get in line, and I give it to the agent, and the agent looks at the slip, looks at me, And he just starts typing right away, right? And then he starts asking me questions like, where were you born? And I'm like, Mexico. And like, he starts typing again. This time his eyes change. I'm not kidding. I'm not being, you know, melodramatic here. He's, you know, his eyes are now judgmental. Like, what are you up to? So now it doesn't take 45 minutes. Now it takes about five minutes to get through. I still get through, uh, but I never hear welcome home or welcome to America or anything like that. It's just, that is just my new normal. That's just the way it is. Everyone's new normal is a little different. So our new normal is taking shape. And some of us are wondering if we're going to go back to the way we were or into something new. I mean, just think about the life of the church. What will it look like? When the dust truly settles, what will we as a church, as the body of Christ, look like? I know that we can all agree that God is still on his throne and was not surprised by any of these events. And I want to be very careful on how I say this, but I'm not going to say that God sent us a pandemic, but I think we will all agree that he allowed it to happen. The question is why? And I've been praying not only through this series and asking not necessarily just what he would have me do as a result of this, but what is he speaking to us about? Where would he have us as individuals, maybe even as a nation if we want to get further along, but certainly as a church and certainly as believers in the body of Christ. I know, again, for certain that God wants to draw us near. He's always, since the beginning of time, has asked us and he's he's trying to get us to trust him and not fear and not worry. Will we be faithful in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of this new normal? Will we serve one another? Will we love one another? You know, the Bible says in John that Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. That's what Scripture says. And it would feel like, to me, this is my opinion, that someone is shaking those branches, someone is shaking that vine, and they want to see if we're going to remain faithful. Will we hold on, or will we break off and fall onto the ground? Let me tell you why I feel that way. I love statistics. Recent data by a group called BARNA, which is a well-respected organization, Shows that among practicing Christians, now a practicing Christian is somebody who would identify as a Christian and agree strongly that faith is very important to their lives or did or was important to their lives prior to COVID. And they attended church at least once a month. That's practicing Christians according to, to Barnum. Out of that group, 53% of that group say that they've streamed their services. They're either here like you guys are or they're watching online right now. 53% of you that have been going to church at least once a month are doing that right now. They're here or you're watching online like you are right now. Another 34% are streaming a different church service online other than their own church. Essentially, these are the words of Barna, not mine. They are church hopping digitally, which I completely understand. I've done that myself, continue to do it. I just want you to be at church. I just want you to listen to God's word. Just do it. But here, here's what, what alarms me, that almost a third of those practicing Christians, that's 32%, say they have done neither of these things. They haven't done, gone to church. I'm preaching to the choir because you're here. They haven't streamed it online. They basically have just, gone by the wayside. And we can confidently basically say that this 32% have dropped out of the church for the time being, but we don't know if they're coming back. I mean, I think we should all kind of wake up to the fact that that is a reality for a lot of people, and we may lose a few people. Their vine, their branch was shaken, and they let go, and somehow are not engaged in any reality for them. So certainly, they've taken a break. Certainly, everyone needs a break, and and we're going to take a little break. I keep hearing that a lot uh, recently from a lot of different angles, and I'm not just talking church. Like, we're on a break. We're going to take a break, this little break, and I think breaks are great. I take breaks, but breaks are intended to refresh you. Breaks are intended to kind of just give you a little more life. They're supposed to be able to just allow you to come back stronger right? As you replenish, as you take that break, they're not meant for you to just take a break and not come back to the things that you're supposed to be doing. Now, we can also say without a doubt that through this pandemic, we are a blessed people, a blessed people as individuals and as a nation. And we can maybe have a conversation about the nation part, but I've been to other countries. I am from another country, and I can tell you that we are blessed beyond belief as a nation. God has blessed us even though we're going through these struggles. And God, through these struggles, has remained faithful. And for us, we continue to witness as a church how people, you, are rising up and loving one another and serving one another and giving generously, even in the midst of this pandemic. You know, we realize that we are blessed beyond belief. And it reminded me of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul cites this illustration to another group of people who were greatly blessed by God, but yet experienced some discipline from God. And in chapter 10, Paul begins by making this connection. He's writing to the Corinthian church in the New Testament, and he's making this connection with this generation of Israelites that escaped from Egypt in the Exodus from the Old Testament. You guys remember the story of Moses, right? So, so I want us this morning to contemplate if there are any parallels, there might not be, you decide, to us today. The same generation of Israelites that escaped Egypt under Moses' leadership died in the wilderness over the next 40 years. These people, the Israelites, were rescued and they received some significant blessings from God. I mean, we know through reading the that Old Testament and, and in Exodus, we hear that God led them, miraculously led them by a pillar of, of fire. And he led them with a the cloud and he got, you know, guided them through the parted Red Sea. People witnessed the, the seas open and they were able to walk through it. And, and in a sense, they were baptized into Moses' Um, and because they received spiritual food from heaven called manna, it would rain down, and that's what they would partake on. And then they would get thirsty, and, and God would supernaturally provide water through this rock. I mean, I, think about watching. I mean, think about experiencing those miracles and seeing God work in your life. They were a blessed people. The Israelites, the Corinthians, and now us have all witnessed and enjoyed God's. The first one, I mean, we, we certainly have enjoyed God's perpetual presence. We know that he's here. We've seen him at work in our lives. I see him at work in my life and I pray that you have as well. In fact, we, we've seen his miracles here of healing and so many things that he's done for us. And, and we've also have witnessed and I already spoke about God's perpetual provision in our lives. I haven't gone hungry. In fact, I've gained pounds through COVID. So that's certainly not an issue for me. I received my share of spiritual food not only as an individual, but as, as a leader of a church and witnessing what God is doing uh, to provide for us perpetually, constantly. So we are a blessed people. Our parallel here to the Israelites and the Corinthians is that we too have enjoyed God's privileges and blessings, both as a nation and as individuals. And, and in some way, this, this sheltering in place through this pandemic has been somewhat of a wilderness experience for some of us. I think, at least, it it feels like that for me, and still is. And despite all of that, the, the Israelites were unfaithful, the Bible says, to God, and therefore disqualified. And in the previous chapter, Paul encouraged us to run the race as if we're running to win the prize. You guys remember that from last week? Run the race as if you're actually wanting to win the prize and you want to train. So it says that all of the Israelites were in the race, but almost all were disqualified in spite of their many advantages. And this is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians verse 5. Now, we're going to stay in mostly in chapter 10. So as you go home and you want to study more and open up your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 5 says, Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Speaking of, uh, Paul is talking to the Corinthians, giving them the example of the Israelites from the Old Testament. You know, paralleling the blessing enjoyed by Israel and their newfound freedom from Egypt, Paul proceeds to recount some, specifically five failures that were experienced by Israel during this time. And I think these examples should cause the Corinthian church and us to pay close attention, lest we may be disqualified. You see, Christian freedom was not meant to lead to self-indulgence. God's, free, Christ has forgiven us, so I should go on sinning kind of mentality. But it should lead us to selfless service. And in verse 6, this is what Paul writes now. These things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So Paul begins with recounting the Israelites' failure when they craved for pleasures. He says that they set their hearts on evil things because they were craving some pleasures when they left Egypt. In fact, in parts of the Bible, it summarizes it because when the Israelites cried out, give us meat to eat. They had experienced God's provision and and they had manna and they had the spiritual food and they were tired of that. They wanted meat. That's what I used to eat in Egypt. I actually want some meat. And in Numbers chapter 11, God gave them what they wanted. But while the meat was still between their teeth, he struck them with, guess what? A pandemic. The Israelites named the cemetery for those who were killed that day, Kibroth Haravah, which means graves of craving. You know, sometimes God disciplines us by giving us what we think we want. And unfortunately, in my life, I can give you several examples of when I push for something or to get something that I thought I really wanted, and then it became a huge pain for me. Maybe some of you have experienced that for me, it usually involves a motor of some kind. (laughs) God gave me what I wanted or allowed me to get it, and then it became a huge pain for me. I mean, how often do we crave the things that God has asked us to leave behind? Maybe it's an old lifestyle. Maybe it is a culture that you used to be part of and God no longer wants you to be part of, but you miss it, right? You want it, maybe you crave it. And maybe he's asking you to leave some unforgiveness behind and you don't want to do that. Or maybe he's asking you to leave some disappointments behind and you keep carrying them. It's not that you want them, but you struggle with them and you just keep bringing them back and it keeps affecting everything that you do. The second failure is that many Israelites failed by participating in idolatry. And this is a big one because it takes on a lot of different shapes. Apparently, some of these Corinthians that Paul was talking to were interested in more than just eating meats and and they were interested in pagan temples. You know, for those who thought that they as Christians could just freely take on idolatry, Paul, his intent in writing this, his illustration was to make sure that they understood and that we would understand that that's not an option. This is what he says in verse 7. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. The Corinthians thought that they could justify their behavior, but Paul is reminding them that God will not be mocked, and if possible, if they continue to do this, it would result, their behavior would result in God possibly taking their lives. He said, if it could happen to the Israelites, it could happen to you. And I'm wondering if he's telling that us as well. I mean, we are, the, you know, praising the God of the New Testament that, that doesn't do this stuff from the Old Testament. But why is Paul reminding the Corinthians as well of the same things? You know, Paul was referring to a time when the Israelites begged Aaron, Aaron, and Moses helper to make them a God in the form of a gold calf. Moses had gone up into the mountains to receive the 10 commandments and tablets. And he was taking so long that the people got tired and they said, Aaron, make us a God. So they formed a God made out of gold, a gold calf and someone that they thought was going to lead them as they moved forward. Now an idol, you see, is anything that is either equal to or greater than God in our lives. It could be a person like a president. It could be a group of people like a political party. It could be a status like your job title, or it could be a thing like a car. It could also be all kinds of things like education, uh, athletics, power, self-expression, beauty, achievement, whatever you give your whole life for, there is your idol. Now, if you're unsure what your idol in your life looks like, or if you even have one, maybe I have a couple of questions that you can ask yourself. If you say, if only I could have blank, whatever you filled in the blank, then I would be happy. If only I had blank, I would be worth something. If only I had blank, I could truly live a fulfilled life. Whatever you filled in the blank is likely the idol in your life. Like the Israelites who came out of Egypt. The Corinthians were also raised in this culture that normalized the worship of false gods. And idolatry for the Corinthians was an everyday experience in their upbringing. It was something they struggled with. It was something they were used to. But here's the issue with idols. It's not that man-made idols have any power in themselves. It is the demons that are lurking behind them that do. You know, there's this word that the Bible uses. It's called koinonia. Koinonia means to fellowship. Here at church is one of our core values. It's called building community. Whenever we participate in any form of idolatry, we fellowship. We build community with the world and its demons, which means that we may identify and commune with the world and its demons. And in contrast, and we may not even know it, And in contrast, Christians are called to fellowship and identify with Christ. And I know that as Christians, we know that we are not to worship idols. And yet we may not realize, especially through our new normal, how closely our daily practices bring us to participating in idol worship. Only you know for sure if this is an area that you need to work on. I'll tell you why you know for sure, because God constantly is faithful. And through prayer, he will remind you and reveal anything that is greater than him in his life, because that's what he does for me. And I know even now as I speak and his word speaks, you're probably thinking if there is any idols in your life that you need to repent from, which is a good thing. That's what God's word is intended to do. A third failure among the privileged Israelites that they were participating in sexual immorality. And here Paul is referring to a time where the Israelites men settled in a different area and these, the men started to indulge in sexual relations with Moabite women, but it didn't stop there because these Moabite women had gods. They had idols and the men would, would participate in the sacrifices, the meal to those idols. And then they would start worshiping those same idols, those same gods. And the Bible says that the Lord's anger burned Against them, and this is what it says in verse eight. Paul writes to the Corinthians: We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day, twenty-three thousand of them died. Ouch! Right, just like that. See, the Corinthians indulge in immorality in contexts other than idolatry. In fact, Paul admonishes the Corinthians in previous chapter, chapter 5, because they were into some really strange, and you guys can read it for yourself. They were into some strange sexual practices, and they would sleep with people they shouldn't be sleeping with. You know, our reaction to sexual immorality should be like that of Joseph. You guys remember Joseph from the Old Testament? Uh, this, This woman was trying to seduce him, and he literally just bolted and ran out of the room. That's how we should be handling sexual immorality. And you know what God used to bring death? You know, those 23,000 that the Bible talks about? A plague, a pandemic. And if he did it to the Israelites, and now Paul is warning the Corinthians, and he wanted them to heed the warnings. I mean, he could do it to them. What makes us think that he wouldn't do that to us? I don't believe that we serve a God that does that. But certainly we have to be mindful of God's wrath in some form or another. The Israelites' fourth failure was testing God. The Israelites started to ask this question, and they started to question God's plan that that he had for them while they were trekking, while they were on their way to Canaan. Verse 9 says that we should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by, wow, snakes. Interesting. Interesting. Paul was referring to a time when the Israelites spoke against God and against Moses and said, this is what the Israelites said, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and we distest this miserable food. And as a result, God says, okay, you're you're testing me, and he sends snakes. Ouch, again, right? It would seem like the Corinthians thought that they knew better than God. And that they knew the path that would bring them to heaven better than God would. And of course, we don't do that, right? We don't test God by ignoring his commands and trekking our own way, making our own path. I mean, it really is tempting to ignore God's instruction and go our own way. In fact, I do it all the time. I may go a whole day with my plans and I try not to, but I may go a whole plan and then I remember, oh man, I should have prayed about that. I should have done that and I, because I thought I knew better. I have my agenda. I have my calendar. I have my to-do. And I just go trek my own path only to realize that God would have maybe made things a little easier, a little better if I had just prayed about it and prioritized and let God lead me instead of me leading myself. Or sometimes we do it in the form of taking parts of the Bible that we like, like God's promises, you know, the parts where it says that God renews his mercy every morning. It's beautiful outside right after the rain. It's just amazing. And we like his comfort and we like his peace. But then there's some parts of the Bible that we don't really agree with. So we just ignore those parts. Israel's fifth failure, which God disciplined with death, was when they started to grumble. The Israelites grumbled. And Paul here is talking about a time when the people of Israel started to grumble against their leaders, Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation, this is what they said. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall into the sword? Talking about going into the promised land. Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back? And there they go again, to go back to Egypt, go back to our old ways where we had meat and we could, you know, we were slaves. We liked that better than perhaps dying in this new promised land. And then here's what they said. They said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. In other words, Moses, Aaron, thank you for bringing us this far, but we want someone new that's going to send us back. 40 years into this, they're like, now want to go 40 years back. They started to grumble against God. So they spoke rebelliously against God and his appointed leaders like Moses and Aaron, which should serve as a warning to you. Don't speak badly of me. I'm totally kidding you. (laughs) You know, I know many of you, And I know most of you are in leadership in some form. So you understand when someone speaks wrongly of you, when someone speaks and goes against your leadership, God has asked you to do something and someone disagrees with you. And I think maybe perhaps here, Paul was facing a similar situation with the Corinthians where they maybe didn't want to follow his leadership. But here's why that happens. Because we tend to complain when we forget. Like we get this form of spiritual amnesia that we forgot that God actually delivered us and provided for us. I mean, it really is a bad thing that I, th- I think you would agree that we all struggle with. Here it is. The people of Israel, after witnessing unthinkable miracles, grumble over their l- less than five-star accommodations. I mean, this wasn't just this headache-induced grumbling or low blood pressure complaining. This is the, here's the real deal. This was faithlessness. It is the heart that says, I know better than God. If only God would follow my plan, we would be better off. You see, grumbling is not ultimately the heart's response to our circumstances, but to God. God. When we grumble, it's not because we're having a hard time through this pandemic. It's because we're not trusting in God's plan. Something that we need to be very careful with. So Paul gives the Corinthian church and has examples and warnings that the God of the Old Testament who disciplined the Israelites could do it again to the Corinthians. And if we, like the Corinthians and the Israelites, believe in our standing with Christ and we believe that our freedom in Christ can be exercised with sin, then we could be wrong, possibly dead wrong. And here's what Paul concludes this with in verse 13. No temptation, he says, has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God, the good news, is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. I think all of us are going through some temptations in our life right now. We're tempted to do a lot of different things. But God is faithful. It says he is faithful. And and Paul now points us to the one whom the Corinthians and we could rely on. See, the temptations that we're facing today are like those that people have always faced since the beginning of time. But they could be met and endured depending on God who is faithful. So as we come out of this national lockdown, what will become of us? What will it look like? Business as usual? Or have we learned something? Will we focus on God in our decisions or will we go our own way? As we settle into this new normal, will we heed the warnings before us and return? And here's the key, surrender, a complete and total surrender to God. You see, as the vine is shaking, as the branches are shaking, will we pursue God? He's drawing us near. This pandemic is not a judgment onto condemnation. I don't believe God is sending us this pandemic to condemn us but maybe he's allowing us to feel it so that we may fall in love with him again. You see, God wants all of our heart again, a complete and total surrender because he recognizes that the heart is the, you know, it's really the, 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 control center of humanity. It controls our living. It involves our person's thoughts and our intentions, our beliefs and our desires and our attitudes, the heart of humanity, exposes what the person truly wants, what the person truly thinks and believes, even if their lips say something otherwise. 2020, this last year, was in many ways just like every other year. And just like every other year that now awaits us, we know that unexpected circumstances will surprise us and force us to respond. And we hope And we pray that this new year will move us past this pandemic, past these political and these racial divisions, past this cynicism and this anger. And yet we realize that this year is probably going to include some illness and some politics and some racism and some cynicism and some anger. How will we respond to our circumstances? Circumstances that in most cases are beyond our control, How will we respond to our social climate? Will we be willing to remove anything that hinders our ability to surrender completely to God? See, I believe this morning that God is wanting to do something new in our lives. As you as individuals, us as a nation, and us as a church. And here's what Isaiah says. Isaiah 43, beautiful scripture forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? Look outside today. It's beautiful. For those of you that have stepped outside, it's just a beautiful day after the rain. Everything's clear. Do you not perceive it? It springs up. God offers to do miraculously a new thing in our character, regardless of our circumstances. This new thing that God wants to form in me requires our surrender, our patience, our humility, and our service. This new thing comes from God is going to require your cooperation. And my hope for this year is not for our circumstances, uh, for us to, to just kind of dwell on them, but, but that God who is continually at work in me, And in you and in our world would use his miraculous power to guide you that you would come out stronger with fruit attached to that vine. So I'm going to declare that this year is the year that we surrender to God. See, I believe God wants this revival to happen among the church. And yes, we may lose 32%, but we're going to gain new people because people are searching. And you are going to provide that opportunity for them to meet God. The year we surrender to God, just like every other year has been up until now, it should be the year that we always surrender to God. It springs up, do you not perceive it? I'm going to call the worship team up. And as they come up, I want to tell you about this, this, uh, this guy named King George VI of England. And this guy addressed the, the British Commonwealth on New Year's Eve at, at a moment in history when the whole world stood in the brink of uncertainty. Despondency and uncertainty filled the air. And at this point, the king's body was just filled with cancer. And before that year was over, he succumbed to that cancer and his life ended. That was 1952. And unaware of his own physical maladies, he uttered these memorable words. He said, I said to the man at the gate of the year, give me a light that I might walk safely into the unknown. And he said to me, go into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. It shall be to you safer than the light and better than the known. Hmm. This is a watershed moment for us. What path will we choose? May I encourage you to choose God And completely surrender to Him moving forward. Will you pray with me? Father, even now I know, Lord, that you're speaking to us. For we know that your word is faithful and it's powerful and it penetrates deeper than a two edged sword, even the bone marrow, revealing, Lord anything that you want us to take note of. Father, we thank you for your provision, your perpetual provision. We thank you for your perpetual presence in our lives, for getting us through this pandemic, for the fact that we are gathered here to hear about you. We are so grateful to you. We have witnessed firsthand your work and your power. Lord, and as we move from here, Lord, we want to be faithful. We want you to give us the power. We want you to give us the ability to completely surrender to you. Lord, and I know that it starts with repentance. And even now you're asking your people that are listening to the sound of my voice to respond because you're revealing to them now an area of their life that you want them to work on. So I pray that you would do it ever so gently, that your love would be evident in all of it. And as we respond back to you, will you accept our forgiveness, our repentance, and will you wash us, like your word says, white as snow. And if that's you this morning, and you just want to surrender your life to Christ, even if you have in the past, but you want to start again right now, you want to recommit that, with every single eye closed and every head bowed, I just want to pray for you. Will you just raise your hand right now? I see your hand. Lord bless you. Amen. Praise Jesus. You guys can put your hand down. Anybody else? Father, I ask that through the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would forgive us as individuals, as a nation, that you would help us, that you would guide us, that you would lead us, yes, into the unknown, Father, for we don't know what lies ahead. Lord, we want to know you more. We want to surrender. Lord, have your way. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.